welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now, here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Bradley Nelson, Senior Director of Clinical Services at Rx Benefits. Bradley, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Matt. Thank you for having me. Bradley, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is give my guests a chance to give a little bit more background in terms of who they are and what they do. So, Bradley, the floor is yours. I appreciate it, Matt. So, I had the actual pleasure of working for Rx Benefits as a Senior Director of Clinical Services, as Matt outlined. Um, but I will say that part of my job is pharmacoeconomic um, professor in a way and, um, and, and clinical advisor as well. So what I do is I manage a team of clinical strategists that help self-insured employer groups be able to determine what they can do to meet their goals and objectives, what plan designs, PBM programs um, that they can do, and what clinical utilization management controls that they can employ in order to control their costs with minimal member abrasion. So that's the fun thing is um, is trading that fine line right there. And so that is quite a mouthful, and I think we'll dive into that quite a bit. But kind of the other background question I always like to ask is, you know, what got you into first into healthcare in the first place? Actually, um, I was probably in my mid-teens. Um, I got into healthcare after watching um, my grandfather go through something uh, very difficult. And I, I did get emotional thinking about it um, because that was a turning point in my life with respect to um, my decision to go into healthcare. Uh, interesting thing is, is I actually started in engineering prior to going to healthcare, where um, my passion ultimately lay. But due to that issue at a young age, I decided I wanted to, to make a difference. Uh, whether that is uh, as a doctor, a pharmacist, or a nurse. Those were my three uh, choices at the time. So it sounds like you ended up kind of going towards that pharmacy side. So how did you kind of what, what path led you into pharmacy and, you know, kind of with the initial kind of stating of what you're focused on, can you start providing, you know, provide a little bit more color around, you know, what specifically are you working on these days? Sure. So um, as a pharmacist, there's a lot of chemistry background, and that was actually my passion with respect to engineering is working with chemicals and understanding how uh, chemistry works on the human body, the human physiology. Uh, pharmacy was a natural fit for that. And so it, I just gravitated to that area. And it's allowed me to really understand why people take certain medications for certain disease states, as well as um, how those particular medications can create physiological changes over time to actually either improve the human condition or maybe harm the human condition over time due to inappropriate use. So when you're thinking about kind of that utilization, you know, what are the factors that go into selecting the appropriate drug or medication? And you know, if there isn't something that maybe exactly fits what you're looking for, how do you determine, uh, you know, the use of a drug that maybe isn't specifically identified for that particular use? That's a great question. Um, I always position it like this, Matt. Drugs are not naturally occurring items, right? They're not natural to the human body. Once you put them in, you can't get it out. So you have to have specific rationale of why you need it. Chemical imbalance, a physiological condition, so on and so forth. And the way drugs work, it's, it's like a lock and a key mechanism. So you have a key uh, within your body 
that creates an action once it's unlocked. And what a drug does is it has to fit that lock specifically. So if you need a specific action to occur, then you need the specific key to unlock the lock to make it occur. So when I look at making recommendations, I look at, well, does the lock really fit the key or am I trying to use a credit card to, to break into the lock to get through? So it's only specific people really should be taking medications for very specific reasons. Um, and that's where I come in. As you said, that's where you come in. So kind of walk me through what happens when someone does call you in. And as you said, you're looking for the right key for a particular lock. You know, kind of what are, what are some of the decisional factors that lead you to finding that correct key? So one of the tools that we have in the pharmacy benefits management space is the prior authorization. The prior authorization is usually developed a sets of criteria uh, that uh, composes case studies, um, standards of care, as well as FDA-approved indication and the studies that went into those FDA-approved indications for specific doses for specific conditions. So the prior authorization is actually utilized as the means for determining is this the right key for this person to unlock this particular lock? So to me, that's where uh, Rx Benefits and my team come in is really reviewing that criteria to make sure that people um, have an appropriate, uh, I guess the be best words would say an appropriate measure of meeting that criteria before access is granted to those medications. Because again, remember, these aren't naturally occurring substances. And if you allow access to a medication that's inappropriate, then that could potentially be harmful to a patient, right? Uh, so we want to make sure that the right medication is the one that's being done. And in some cases, hard to believe, it might not be any medication. It might not exist yet. Or it might be uh, uh, where a, a provider, and this again is hard to believe, may have prescribed a medication simply because a patient has asked for it, not necessarily because the patient really needs it. And so we have to make sure that the level of appropriateness and the medical necessity burden is met before getting that access. As you said, there might not be a clear indication um, where the which drug is appropriate, and that's, as you said, why you're going through and assessing. So how does that factor into you know, what seems to be a somewhat common way of using drugs, which is, you know, off-label use. So, you know, there's intentional use of the drug outside of the FDA-approved indication. It's a great question. Uh, when it comes to off-label use, um, providers push the boundaries a lot. Um, and the way this happens is they look at the chemistry of the medication and they think, well, hang on, this has this impact how can I potentially use this impact to my patient's benefit? There's nothing wrong uh, with that potential uh, off-label use happening. But when it is an off-label use that starts being driven by uh, consumerism, that can be a problem where people join a bandwagon in order to have a perceived benefit or, excuse me, they're actually looking at a, uh, a benefit that happens in this one specific instance for these specific patients, and they're leveraging that in order to gain access for a lifestyle choice or lifestyle modification. So there's some issues surrounding that today, particularly with um, drugs like Ozempic uh, and we go um, versus Wegovy versus 
Mongero versus Sexenda and Trulicity. There's all this going on, particularly in the media today with those medications. But the interesting thing is, Matt, this actually happened back in the early 90s with lifestyle medications where an, um, an off-label use or a, a side effect of a heart of a uh, excuse me, pulmonary arterial hypertension medication ended up being used for lifestyle uh, medications for, for ED. And that's Viagra, the blue pill. That was actually uh, the off-label use ended up becoming a future labeled use. And now we're seeing that again, uh, hard to believe it, 25 years later. It, so it kind of, it sounds like there's, you broke down off-label use into, I'm hoping, well, I'm going to say two primary camps, although it sounds like there might be more than that. But one camp I think you're talking about is where a clinician has looked at the chemical structure or you know, maybe other clinical evidence that might be available to say, this is kind of the impact that using the drug for this non-indicated use might, might have. So is, I guess before I go into the next one, is that an accurate description of um, one type of camp for off-label prescribing? I would agree with that. It would be expanding beyond the indicated use that would, where the chemical would actually make, you're basically having the the effect that you want, but in a wider population for which it's indicated. Yes, that is uh, one one example. Great. And then it sounded like the second one was maybe more, I think you said consumer driven, where they're seeing you know, anecdotal evidence or anecdotal statements uh, might be a more accurate way of saying it, because I don't know if it probably rises to the level of true evidence. Um, but there's kind of that, you know, a push through society of saying, well, if you use this particular drug, it's going to enhance this lifestyle choice. You know, so if that is an accurate second camp, you know, do you see any particular factors that make a drug more susceptible or not for that kind of um, and I hate to say this, but viral impact occurring? Um, it really comes down to, well, let's go back in time a little bit. Um, and just some, when you're in college, you've probably heard heard this a long time ago. Hey, how how what keeps me up so I can study better? What can I focus? And the next thing you know, people are getting Adderall prescriptions in order to um, have a, a means to an end. And I think that's where part of the issue is, is when the the global consciousness of our society is pushing in a certain direction. You you have to be as smart as possible. You have to go to college, get a degree, and people get pressured in order to, I need to get this medication. Today, in some um, classifications, the the GLP medications like Ozempic are being used because we have a perception in society that everybody's got to be thin. So there's there's that aspect um, to where people are using those types of medications as the new diet, the new Atkins diet, the new South Beach diet. And, but ultimately, what it can do is create a, a thin thin phenomenon where people might be having side effects that right now we don't know what's going to happen because this is a viral phenomenon, as you mentioned, Matt. We might end up having um, you know decades from now uh, uh, several people that have conditions that could have stemmed from this incident here at this point in time. Because again, with every drug, there's side effects. And with every drug, there's a potential for long-term side effects. We just don't know when you start expanding the population base to this amount um, due to the uh, viralness that's going on with these particular drugs. 
And actually, that's a great point that you just mentioned, which is you know, when a drug is going through FDA approval, part of the reason you have to go through all the research and clinical trials is to start gathering information and data around the side effects or unintentional effects. So if you've got off-label use occurring like this, you know, are those data being collected? And if they are, kind of what happens with that process? Great question. Usually some um, FDA does require some post-marketing uh, reporting. Uh, typically that can occur through uh, like a med watch or something like that, where physicians and patients can actually report and pharmacists by that uh, token can actually report side effects that are being experienced. Um, that's that's how you found out issues with Vioxx and uh, and Bextra back in the day when those COTS-2 inhibitors came out and it created some issues associated with cardiovascular conditions. Um, similar thing with uh, like a drug called Victoza. Uh, it's a GLP. It's one of the earlier ones that was approved in 2010. Um, it actually has a black box warning for medullary thyroid cancer. So when you start looking at things like that, that's what I fear for the public is that if there's not a gatekeeping aspect where anybody and everybody can access these medications, just because it's the end thing to do doesn't make it the right thing to do. And just because there's a similar active ingredient as the weight loss agent. So I mentioned earlier, Wegovy, which is a higher um, uh, a higher dosage of, the, of Ozempic, just because there is that labeled indication for weight loss with that drug, doesn't mean everybody needs to go out and get the lower call to get their beach body for the summer ready. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And um, for those of you just joining, I'm talking about Bradley Nelson of RX Benefits, and we're talking about uh, off-label prescribing. So kind of Bradley, we've been talking a lot about a consumer-driven um, off-label use. You know, as that occurs, and you know, with the example of Ozempic, you know, What's the impact on the overall industry and, you know, what happens to the supply of that drug for the patients who need it for the actual indicated usages of that drug? Well, we saw that in 2022, um, and we see a portion of that in 2023 with a hopeful resolution, full resolution um, in the mid-2023. So what ends up happening is people that need it can access it. Um, and that that's a travesty because uh, the a, the hemoglobin A1C or blood sugar lowering effect of Ozempic is it, fairly meaningful. Um, you can lower your A1C by one percent. One percent is pretty significant for someone with type two diabetes that needs to control their condition. And if you're uh, if there is a shortage of that type of medication. What else do they have? Back in the fall of 2022, PBMs were actually opening up their formularies to for newer medications that just hit the market, like Mongero, that hit, um, I believe, last June. Uh, instead of creating that initial need-to-market block that a lot of PBMs do, they opened up the formulary so that people can have access to medications. And that ended up providing a shortage in that particular market segment to the point where I think uh, the manufacturer of Mongero is, is, I believe it's them that are going to be starting a new, or finishing up a manufacturing plant soon in order to meet the demand. But again, that demand, is it a transient demand driven by consumerism of people that want to lose weight, or is it demand driven by people that have type 2 diabetes that need the medication? That's the balance there that has to be weighed in the public arena. Yeah, and it seems like if you're as you're talking about you know, the potentially competing demands there, 
you know, how does that factor into the decision of what to manufacture? Because if the manufacturer is going in producing what would probably be an adequate supply for an indicated use, but all of a sudden it gets swamped by a consumer-driven off-label use or potentially even, you know, a, a data-indicated off-label use, you know, how does that impact decisions around how much to produce? And does that end up catching, you know, a manufacturer potentially flat-footed if they overproduce because the off-label indication or preference all of a sudden evaporates? Um, the point that you make is very valid. Um, if manufacturers have specific product lines at their plants and they have to retool it to make this production, that does come at an expense of another production line, just like just like a car factory, right? You know, it's it's like that. You might not see one model car as much in one year because they focused on the demand year. But those people that still need a specific medication, uh, that they could be left out in the lurch, right? So the idea that manufacturers have to balance is, do I need to invest into a, a new product line, a new manufacturing line? Do I need to invest in building a plant? Um, in the cases of some of these GLP meds, yes, they're going to do that. In the cases of, say, um, Adderall, there's been a perpetual shortage of that medication on and off for, for several years. And so those might not necessarily get um, get the love that they need in order to have manufacturers start manufacturing those at high enough quantities. Now, there's some other issues with Adderall that are more regulatory and uh, drug enforcement agency uh, driven, but um, the same can apply there. Yeah, and I guess also as we're thinking about that kind of supply question, um, you know, it seems like there's been shortages of other drugs kind of, I guess, through the course of the pandemic. So it, you know, is that a result of potentially off-label, or is there other are there other issues that are occurring with manufacturer uh, or manufacturing kind of in recent years? I would say that during the the pandemic, one of the issues was the global supply chain. Um, the United States does have a, an over reliance of globalism, um, and and has a lot of their inactive ingredients outsourced to uh, China and India. So one of the issues that we have is when you don't have the active inactive ingredients or the excipients to make certain medications uh, in the United States to pull them in here to manufacture them, that could impact the actual production of certain medications. Typically, we saw that more in the generic space uh, with some uh, medications uh, over the last couple of years. A lot of that has seemed to subside a little bit. But as uh, from, from an American audience standpoint, as you start bringing things more stateside in terms of inactive ingredient production, that type of su uh, supply shortage should drop over time. But so that sounds kind of optimistic, uh, hopefully. Um, what I'd like to do now is kind of shift a little bit back to you know, what we we're talking about towards the beginning, which would be the other type of off-label um, utilization, which is when a clinician has maybe some data um, or other clinical evidence. You know, so maybe could, if you could help highlight or you know, shine a spotlight on what is that type of data or evidence that would... Uh, influence a clinician to go with an off-label uh, use for a particular drug? So again, a lot, of, a lot of drug development has a specific mechanism of action, and that mechanism of action can lead to a cascade of events. If a provider is trying to exploit the benefits of one of those cascading events, then off-label use can lead to case reports can lead to potential uh, follow-up trials that the manufacturer sponsors in order to get go through the appropriate approval process. So sometimes off-label use 
can actually lead to a very positive effect. Um, in some cases, it can be a negative effect. Again, I think where the delineation is, if you allow the normal course of drug development usage after uh, after it's been marketed and released to occur, you start to get these providers that really uh, do the research and actually present it out there as a part of the body of evidence to be uh, considered. But when you have somewhat of a mob mentality of, I'm going to exploit this, um, you know, whether it was ivermectin back in COVID, because um, that was a pretty big off-label use that was being pushed, um, or even Ozempic today, once you start, um, uh, you know, throwing gasoline on that fire, it's hard to stop it. Um, and a lot of providers are actually somewhat pressured. I, I can only imagine that a provider would be pressured by their patients in order to prescribe these medications. They might, they might know that they need this specific thing, but there might not be as much clinical justification. And then from my side of things, I work with payers so they understand what they're paying for. They could be paying for someone's weight loss regimen um, or someone's study habits, trying to keep them up at night. And that's not what they intend to pay for. They, they're wanting to pay for le, le, what they would consider legitimate medical purposes. Now, treating obesity might be part of that plan. But there are FDA-approved drugs that um, touch that. And you have to um, go through specific authorization criteria that may and usually does include uh, robust weight management and counseling uh, to, to be able to treat that and to go through like a program in order to maintain access. And bypassing those channels there is it's it's an inappropriate use of, um, at least from a payer standpoint, an inappropriate use of the funds that they have committed to the overall health of their membership. It, it seems like, you know, if you're thinking about that, the, that interaction of factors that you're just describing, you know, it seems like there's probably multiple opportunities for education at varying levels. So I guess the, you know, the question would be is what type of education do you think is most effective to help um, get either clinicians to patients to understand the situation or payers to clinicians or payers to beneficiaries? Because I imagine there's, you know, an entire circle where, you know, the education could come in and enter at any point within that circle or that the web of connections. I think the biggest knowledge gap, uh, Matt, to be honest with you, is the patient and provider lack of understanding that someone is paying a bill somewhere. I think that's the biggest issue, and that could be somebody's employer. And when you have a, a small employer that is paying the bills and it just skyrockets up because of it's being driven consumerly uh, at, a, at a high rate, that might mean that next year they're going to have to make budget cuts and cut people. And I don't think the global universe of people consider their neighbor when it comes to healthcare benefits. And that somebody is paying paying for those benefits. They look at benefits as being universal. They look at benefits as being free, um, or at least to some extent free. That it's accessible. They look at it as being accessible. And at the end of the day, um, because we've had that, I call it the Burger King mentality. It's my way right away. Um, because it's always like that. Um, there's just too many pressures out there to give people what they want when they want it. And so providers are put into a bad spot. Payers are put into a bad spot. 
And ultimately, I think it comes down to how to educate the patients. Um, high deductible health plans were great at trying to empower patients to make good healthcare decisions. But even, even some of the high deductible health plans can be gained, unfortunately, due to manufacturer coupons that are out there that are paying off uh, those particular uh, the call structures. So um, patients aren't necessarily having to make um, decisions with their wallet. And I think if people actually made decisions with their wallet, they would change their idea of, of how to approach their health care, be more empowered. Um, I'm a pharmacist that believes in less drugs. I'm also a pharmacist that believes in adhering to the best lifestyle you can through diet and exercise, you know, good foods, things of that nature. That's that's who I am. And that's what I advocate. And I think that's really where we need to go with patient because an ounce of prevention is always worth a pound of care. And certainly an approach of, you know, I think, as you said, promoting a healthy lifestyle or uh, promoting different choices that could have a positive impact. That seems like it's another opportunity for education because it's you know, I think it also connects to a point that you made about, you know, you don't necessarily immediately turn to a drug, but you counsel and you consider other options. So, you know, is it fair to say that those are all different forms of educational opportunity where, you know, maybe it strengthens the relationship between, you know, the individuals involved in that discussion? Absolutely. I think what uh, patients are looking for is someone that can advocate on their behalf. They, they can't navigate this healthcare system. It is a convoluted um, uh, apparatus. And they're really just looking for someone to help them out. And unfortunately, what they do is they turn to television. They turn to the internet. And that's where they see living your best life now. If I'm on, only on this drug here, I can live my best life. And that's what unfortunately causes a downstream cascade. It's it's a warped version of, of true patient education, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I think that is a very astute point because it's, you know, the, those commercials are so much designed to influence uh, the attitudes or the choices of the viewer without really true medical or professional insight into what's happening. But Bradley, believe it or not, we're already almost out of time. So I want to ask one final question, which is, what piece of information do you think is most overlooked when it comes to discussions around off-label use of drugs? I would say that the number one thing is the patient has to be educated beyond the surface. They have to know the risk. They have to know the benefits. But ultimately, the provider has to make that, um, that clinical decision point to whether or not they want to pursue for a very specific person for an off-label purpose. Going beyond the scope of traditional medical practice, they need to think whether or not that, are they going past that point or are they just trying to help someone because they won't want, want something? That's a fine line to walk. And as people, we want to help. As clinicians, we want to help. But at the end of the day, we still ha have to be the clinician. And we have to make the help people make the right decision, not just give people what they want. Yeah, no, I think that is a great takeaway. Where it's you know, as you said, it's you can collaborate and you can be working together, but you know, use the professional expertise and the professional knowledge that's built that's part of that relationship. Um, but as I said, believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest Bradley Nelson for a great conversation today. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it.
And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with Matt, connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. <laughs>